I'd like to warn you about the explicit nature of the show, but I'll just hint that you know what you're in for, making this an implicit, explicit warning. Hi, it's Mike, Mike Pasca. It's Saturday, and this is a show. I'm not going to say do the math. You might have done better on the verbal section of your SIT. I'll say conjugate the verb. So consider this a conjugal visit with me, Mike Pesca, on the Saturday show, where I bring you an excellent interview from the past and an excellent segment from this week. This week, I talked about one of the two momentous Supreme Court decisions, actually considering the Miranda decision, there were maybe more than that. But the one I'm talking about in this episode is guns. I will add and amend a little bit of sunshine. And by the way, I knew the sunshine was out there. I just thought gloomy was the right tone on that day, which is this. Listen to everything I'm about to say. I stand by it. It is also true that there may be a pathway forward. A state like Connecticut has issued the equivalent of a May issue law. We're looking to book the uh, attorney general of Connecticut, William Tong, on the show to talk about maybe that is a way forward for other states that don't want to be dragooned which comes from a reference to a small blunderbuss, do not want to be dragooned into this new Supreme Court dictated land of all gun laws being shall issue. But before we get to that, my commentary, my spiel from a little earlier this week, I bring you an interview I did a couple years ago with Lee Drutman. Lee Drutman, writing on 538, had an article today or yesterday Uh, The main thrust was only 8% of congressional districts will be competitive this November. Truly abysmal, which is true. So what do you do about such a situation? Well, Drutman himself authored a plan out of it. I don't agree with it, but it made for a great talk. His book was Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. I just, I just opt for democracy at this point you know why even have to go multi-party bi-party democracy would be fine too but you'll hear that interview with lee drutman coming up next I've been enjoying the writings of political scientist Lee Drutman for quite some time. Now, maybe enjoying is the wrong word because what Lee Drutman writes about is all the flaws of our political system. But then he proposes solutions. So you might think, oh, that's the part you enjoy. No, it's not because it has the effect of me saying, yeah, that'd work and it'll never happen. Well, he's put down all his ideas, all his frustrating because they're mostly true ideas into a new book about pretty much the biggest bad thing that's going on that explains so many of the other bad things. It's called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, the Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Hey, Lee. Hey, Mike. So why is, I know that you did a lot of research on, say, money in politics, and a lot of people will say, oh, that's the biggest problem. But why do you think partisanship, the current flavor of partisanship, is worse than anything else, like money in politics, corruption, racism, bad media, et cetera? Oh, God, there's a lot of terrible things going on, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so pick of the, of the parade of horribles. Yes, the horribleness. yes. The, 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 the worst at that parade is, is hyperpartisanship. Uh, because it fundamentally threatens the basic foundation of democracy, which is a shared sense of fairness, a shared sense of legitimacy in the basic procedures of elections and uh, and, and government. 
And what we have now is, is a really unprecedented level of binary hyperpartisanship that is fundamentally destroying that foundation. And in the book, I argue that this is actually something new, that while we've, already, we've always had a two-party system, what we have now is a genuine two-party system with two truly distinct national parties equally uh, have equally balanced both of which have a chance to take control of Washington in any given election and that close competition and deeply divided two-party system it is is a real threat and for a long time, we had overlapping parties and it didn't really matter that much whether Democrats and Republicans were in charge but now, uh, we have these two truly distinct parties and no resolution and just escalating hyperpartisanship ahead. Right. And the irony, and I'm using this word correctly, is that it was political scientists who didn't cause it but said it would be a great thing if our titular two-party system were ideologically sorted. And I've talked about this on the show, but you could go back to this big 1950 study where they said, yeah, we, we have two parties, but what do they really represent? Wouldn't it be a great thing if the Republicans were just, I don't even know if they actually made the prescription, but wouldn't it be a great thing if they were really just a conservative party and a liberal party? That would have so many benefits. It came to pass, and you, a, n- a current political scientist, are saying, actually, that's the worst thing that could have happened. Uh, yes. <laughs> so let's listen to you and those of your ilk. Well, not all political scientists are the same. And there were certainly plenty of folks who were political scientists in the 1950s who said, actually, that's a terrible idea. But certainly at the time, you could understand why a lot of political scientists might come to the conclusion that we ought to have uh, more distinct parties. Because when the two parties are basically the same, it's really hard for voters to send clear signals and to know what the parties actually stand for. And that's an important piece of democracy is for elections to actually mean something. Uh, Secondarily, that two-party system was really based around a lot of consensus, uh, which meant that a lot of the differences in the country weren't being aired and debated. And in particular, it was a consensus not to deal with civil rights at the national level and perpetuate the Jim Crow South, which I think we would not consider the greatest success of of American party politics. Uh, Now, I I think the mistake that they made was not in saying that parties should stand for something, is in thinking that there should only be two political parties. And at the time, they thought, well, it couldn't possibly come to pass that American parties would become ideological and quite distinct because American politics was so non-ideological at the time. So ultimately, it was a a failure of imagination uh, to understand what it would look like to have two truly distinct parties representing two very different geographies, very different values, and fundamentally different ideas of what it means to be an American. Is the problem that there are two parties, one a liberal party and one a conservative party, as much as it is the problem that, let's put both of our cards on the table, we're both Democrats or left-leaning to some degree or another, is the problem that one of those two binary choices has gotten so so out there, so dysfunctional, so antithetical to equity? Uh, I think the answer is both. Uh, The fact that we have a two-party system, a genuine two-party system is a problem. And the fact that the Republican Party has moved so far to the right and has uh, embraced an increasing 
the uh, some might call anti-democratic view of democracy, making it harder for people to vote. That's a serious problem. But the the challenge is there's no way to resolve that problem in the two-party system because a lot of folks identify as Republicans and a lot of folks think, well, Democratic Party is not for me, so the only alternative is the Republican Party. And they're motivated as much by preventing liberals from taking power as they are from supporting what the Republican Party stands for. So uh, the only way to break out of this this gridlock, out of this doom loop, is to essentially blow up both parties and allow more parties to flourish, new coalitions to emerge, so that not everything is a, is a zero-sum political contest. Uh, it's not everything is trench warfare uh, for the fate of the nation. But wouldn't the more doable strategy just to be Democrats beat these totally radical Republicans? They beat them on the state level, on the local level, on the national level. They do the blocking and tackling. They also propose uh, a vision. They also maybe benefit from the demographics, which you rightly say are a little bit overblown, but they benefit from a demographic shift. And therefore, within this two-party system, we don't have to change the system. You essentially make the Republicans more sensible. You bring about that you you breathe into life that autopsy that Reince Priebus did for the party. We have to become less white supremacist and less anti-immigration. And that's an easier fix than a total overhaul and a change in the way American politics has always ever been. Well, I think one of the challenges is that uh – one that understates the the inevitable uh, backlash against the, whatever party is in power. People overstated that in 2009 when Democrats took unified control of government. And then there was a backlash. Now, this is a predictable pattern in American politics. Uh, people consider this there to be a, a thermostatic nature that America moves more in a more liberal direction when Republicans are in power and a more conservative direction when Democrats are in power. And I think we would likely see that same pattern continuing. Uh, so I'm not sure how Democrats are going to get enough of a, of a, of a majority uh, given those predictable patterns. And uh, finally, I think the, the more troubling part of that is if it looks like Democrats are going to start to be in a permanent majority position, I don't think the Republican Party is going to say we should suddenly moderate. I think th the message that they will take away is we have to fight even harder and be even more aggressive and that's when democracy will really be threatened. I mean, I think that's already some of what we're seeing in the Republican Party now, and it will just get worse and worse. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't see how the Republican Party is going to moderate when all of the moderates have left the Republican Party, and there's nobody within the Republican Party coalition to say, "Hey, let's totally do a 180 on the values that we've been fighting for and <laughs> be the party." Of, of multiculturalism and immigration to compete with the Democrats. So there are different methods of voting, and a lot of them are used in places as, you know, obscure as Maine and Ireland. Give me your favorite ways that we could vote differently or maybe even structure how our legislation works that would give rise to a multi-party democracy. Yeah. So there are a lot of forms of proportional representation. Most advanced democracies have some form of proportional multi-party democracy. Uh, the version that I recommend in the book is a, is a version uh, that, that is very similar to what they have in Ireland and what they have in Australia, uh, which is a 
system of ranked choice voting. Uh, and in the House, I would combine that with multi-member districts, which would create a proportional system. In the Senate, I think you'd have to keep the single winner elections. Uh, I'd also increase the size of the House, and I'd also get rid of congressional primaries. And I think the combination of all of those things together would would move us towards a multi-party democracy. You know, look, I think the, the challenges that we're at a moment in which there are a lot of challenges broadly to, to liberal democracies throughout the Western world. There's the backlash to the financial crisis and globalization. There's the increasing divide between the cosmopolitan urban parts of the, of the countries that are doing well and engaged in a global economy and the post-industrial uh, rural exurban parts of the country that are increasingly left behind between younger and older generations. And you know, the question is, which type of party system is most equipped to, to resolve those issues? And to me, the danger of the two-party system is that it reifies and amplifies those divisions in a way that becomes zero-sum and binary and all or nothing. But do you think that our parties make us fractious or how fractious we are has given rise to these uh, very far apart sorted parties? Because I worry that if there were this system with all these different parties and the most that anyone could wield is, you know, 10 to 15 percent, we'll have a situation like Italy or like Israel now, you know, just keep we keep forming governments. There's no continuity of power. To some extent, it is a feature, not a bug, that even though you might not have the full support of the majority of the American people, you are president and you have the power. We have a very strong uh, presidency, unlike a lot of other countries, and given our spot in the world, unlike Italy, I think it is to our benefit that we have a strong, relatively strong executive. Well, we could still have a, a reasonably strong executive in a multi-party system. Uh, but I think the the danger is that in a two-party system, if neither party has the majority uh, you're you're in this system of of endless gridlock, and the coalitions get basically stuck. The advantage in a multi-party system is that yeah, sometimes it, you have to hold another election, or it takes a while to build that coalition. But then you can build a governing coalition, and you know I think coalitions should be fluid because majorities are changing, and uh, that's okay. The question is whether the the legislation and the policy making is ultimately somewhat stable and i think the danger of our of our bifurcated two party system is that as the parties have pulled apart the uh, policy goes from very far right and then to the left to the to the right to the left and there's no stability as for the question of how divided we are i mean certainly america is a is a divided nation uh, but I think the, the two-party system is amplifying and, and reifying those divides in a way that makes it very hard for us to resolve those debates because we've cast them so much in terms of all or nothing, either the Democrats rule or the Republicans rule. But in a multi-party system, no single party has the pretensions or the illusions that they will be the dominant majority. And so they have to build coalitions. They have to compromise. That's just the name of the game. And that's institutionalized in the system. And I think that was how our politics operated in a, in a different period in which we had something much more like a multi-party democracy within our two-party system. And finally, the cover of the book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, has an illustration of animals painted red, white, and blue. And you got your donkey and your elephant. But then there are three others in there, I, I suppose, representing parties yet to be born. There is a wolf 
Looks like a grizzly bear on its hind legs and hind legs and some sort of puma. What do you imagine these, if you had to write fanfic on these parties, what would they be? What, what's the grizzly bear party, the wolf party, and the puma party? Well, um, so in the final chapter of my book, if, if people make it that far, I, I do envision a future scenario in which we do have a five-party system. And the, the five parties that I envision are on the left that there's a, a social democratic party, think Bernie Sanders. There's a moderate uh, new democratic party, think Joe Biden. Uh, and then on the right, <laughs> that's new. That's new. Democratic well, you know, party. I mean, new yeah. quote. It, Let's old, say Buttigieg. Old Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> there's a new Democratic Party. Think, think Pete Buttigieg. Uh, yeah. There is a uh, a reform republic. There is a reform conservative party. Think Marco Rubio. There is a sort of Christian free market party. Think Ted Cruz. And then there's a, a Tucker Carlson. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I'm not sure if Tucker Carlson. I, I would I would put him a little bit more in the, in the final party, uh, uh-huh. which is the uh, nationalist populist party. Uh, think Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson. Right, and who gets uh, who gets what animals though? I, I don't know. It's up for grabs. Whoever, let's do it. I, who do you think? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll give the bear to the uh, to the to the socialist Democrats. I'd give the the coyote to the uh, to the to the Ted Cruz uh, Republicans, and, uh, and now I'm not looking at the and cover the, uh, of my book. Well, I think, I, think, I think the Puma, forget the Puma, it would right. be actual Trump. Yeah. All right. It would be actual Trump. Just, just Trump. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Lee Drutman's a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America. He is the author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. This was a lot of fun. And now the spiel. In New York, it's called proper cause. New Jersey dubs it justified need. It is the question of whether a citizen should be able to carry a gun. 43 states say yes, flat out yes. These are the shall issue states. Fill out the forms properly. If you don't have certain criminal convictions, you get a gun. But in a few states, it's conditional. And in a few, very few municipalities within those states, it does become improbable. And that is why the municipality in which I live is statistically likely to be safer than wherever you live if you live somewhere else in the United States. The murder rates in New York City used to be in the threes when the country was in the fives. Now the New York City homicide rate is 5.5 and the national murder rate in 2021 was 6.9. What's the cause? I would say there was, to a large extent, a proper cause, the proper cause. New York City's gun laws worked for New York City. If working is described as keeping more people alive and unwounded than there would otherwise be. Or I probably should say worked because today the Supreme Court ruled as expected that states may not have may issue regimes when it comes to guns. All states are to adopt shall issue rules which means that the laws that were working for New York will not be allowed to keep working due to a Supreme Court ruling. They interpreted a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, as meaning keeping and bearing arms on one's person, concealed. The rights of a person, by the way, to have a gun on their premises in their homes in New York City, It did require forms and background checks, but it was 
fairly easy to get one for a non-felon. But in overturning New York state law, the Supreme Court reversed a rule that was on the books since 1913. The law has governed New Yorkers for 109 years. That law was passed 122 years after the Second Amendment was ratified. That's almost the same amount of time. Yet somehow our current Supreme Court's understanding of the meaning of the Second Amendment is clearer than it was to the New York State Legislature over 100 years ago and in the 109 years since. The Supreme Court has decided that the laws that worked for the city of New York and the state of New York should not have been allowed to work. Thousands of lives saved over the years should not have been allowed to be saved. I feel obligated but reluctant to say something about states' rights and local control and law but charge of hypocrisy, but neither party faction or philosophy is pure on this. But it is just a clear example of local laws working relative to the national trend and the Supreme Court coming in and saying, nope, we don't care. In a note, Samuel Alito noted that the Buffalo Massacre happened in New York, and therefore, I I didn't understand what his point was. How does that affect concealed carry? The gunman there wielded an AR-15, not able to be concealed. By the way, if in 1791, when they ratified the Second Amendment, they were talking about concealed carry, they were talking about a firearm that could shoot one time every two minutes, was muzzle-loaded, the shortest of which... A dragon, which is a type of blunderbuss, was 11 inches, as opposed to a Glock today, which is six or seven inches. So it's maybe even unlikely that a concealed weapon could have been anything other than a dagger. There is no way the Constitution anticipated widespread concealed carry, and no way the Founding Fathers would want the court to look at a law that was entirely aligned with the good working order of a state, of their first capital, in fact, and say, no, we must authorize John Jay and his fellow jurists to disallow it. Yes, I know, it wasn't until Marshall that we had judicial review, but this is not the original intent of the founders. In fact, there is no possible universe in which the idea of original intent even if applied justly, would be applied to this law in this way, appending as it does existing laws that weren't even thought to be in the realm of the unconstitutional for decades, nay centuries. For decades, there just wasn't the idea that laws regulating personal gun ownership might be unconstitutional. And then it became an idea, and within a generation, that idea became a Supreme Court ruling. And while this is personal for me as a New Yorker, so many states are affected, and by affected I mean hurt, and by states being hurt I mean the people in those states will be hurt or killed because of this ruling. Here now are the states with the lowest rates of firearm mortality according to the CDC. Hawaii, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, Connecticut, and California. Here now are the states that were may issue, that have may issue, not shall issue, gun laws on their books. Hawaii, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, Connecticut, and California. Now, to be fair, two more states are may issue, Delaware and Maryland, that don't have low firearm mortality rates. Maryland, it's a clear example of it being the exception to the rule, Baltimore being a city rife with murder, and may issue laws not doing much to affect that. Delaware, on the other hand, they are a may issue state, 
but as the Supreme Court even noted, may issue in name only in 2022 in Delaware. This year in Delaware, 5,680 permits were applied for and 5,568 were granted. But the facts are clear, really clear. The rule is that the more restrictive gun laws a state has, the fewer people proportionally that state has dying from guns. It is an extremely strong correlation, in fact. The Supreme Court just made the lives of American citizens worse, doomed more people to death, usurped the state's authority to pass laws that help and protect their citizens, and interpreted the Constitution in an historically novel way. And now I will make one subjective part of this litany of accusations, interpreted the Constitution in an incredibly asinine way. The blessings of my constitutional rights never felt so damning. And that's it for The Saturday Show. Thanks to Corey Wara and Joel Patterson, the assistant and senior producer, respectively. And I will talk to you on Monday.